You are listening to True Crime Fiction and we are feeding your addiction to the best of the spoken and written word in all things crime. this episode because we have our first ever author interview and I'll be interviewing CJ Cooper who is the author of The Book Club and just released on ebook if I'm correct The Verdict. So um, am I right in saying that The Verdict's just out on ebook now and the the physical copy is going to be coming later in the year? Yes, that's out in September. Um, so yeah, I'm not not sure why it works this way, but um, both the book club and the verdict were out in ebook, and then subsequently in paperback. Um, that's just the way that Constable choose to publish them. Okay, great. Well, I I read the ebook, and I have to say, I have a lot of thoughts about Natalie. She <laughs> she is quite the character. I feel like there's more to dig down into with Natalie, basically. Mm -hmm. We didn't quite get the full picture of everything that's going on for her. Um, So she was very intriguing. But um, first of all, I wanted to just ask questions about the process before we sort of get into the nitty gritty a bit more. Um, It seems to me that your two books came out really quite quickly. So the book came out last August, I think it was. And we've now got the ebook out. How was that process for you? Was it a whirlwind? Yeah, well, so um, actually they were they were both written before I got my publishing contract although obviously they have to go through a lot of work before they see the light of the day and in the form that they're in when they're published um but the book club came out I think it was June actually last year Um, and uh but not oh sorry no that's not true actually it was June 2019 it came out in ebook um so it was a very long gap between that and the paperback publication which was in October and that was partly a Covid thing so it was originally due out in February of last year um but the publishers delayed it because they wanted to pitch it to supermarkets uh and then over the summer period that they so they have slots essentially when they can do these things and they only pitch so many books and the slot that they had available to pitch was in august so hence it couldn't come out until that had happened uh and they knew at the time that there was always a risk that the, it might be delayed and the supermarkets um might not pick it up and of course in the event that's exactly what happened because lots of people uh delayed the launch of their books which had previously been expected to take place over the spring um, and pushed them into autumn. So there was a huge glut of books coming out in autumn and uh, they, uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't get anywhere sadly with the supermarkets, but Hey, there we go. That's life. So it came out much later than expected. Um, And then, uh, yeah, the verdict I think was always sort of scheduled for around February of this year in ebook form. So it it came out uh, as it was originally planned. So yes, they are in fact really quite close together in that way. Yeah, I think it's been really quite tough um, for the publishing industry, which there's part of me that thinks not as tough as for the NHS, Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, but I have heard a lot lot of people having to do book launches and lockdown and, Mm -hmm. you know, just find completely different ways of doing things. Yes, and of course, I've never actually had a a normal book launch, so in a way it's good, so I don't know what I'm missing out on (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I mean it has it's been actually it's been really good because there have also been opportunities to go along to things virtually that 
happened in completely different parts of the country that I would never have been able to do at another time. So virtual noir at the bar, for example, which was something that has stopped now, sadly, but was running for a lot of, of lockdown, uh, normally took place physically, as I understand it, in Manchester. And so the chances of my um, getting up there would have been relatively slim but actually being able to take part over for the internet it's been brilliant and there were lots of authors from all over the place including those who are based abroad who were able to uh, to take part as a result and that was really great actually. That's really interesting I wonder if this might sort of hold on after we're hopefully Mm -hmm. over the pandemic because I know being a writer in Scotland it can seem like so much is based in London and of course it's if you have a job with a family and and commitments and responsibilities you can't just hop on a train and get down there for one evening. So true. Yeah so it, it might be really great if this kind of thing carries on in some sort of virtual form for people yes. afterwards as well. Do you think this will be quite a big change for writing communities? I, I hope so actually because I, I think like you that it's a great opportunity and I know that people have been starting to talk about trying to, to take the positives from this period and, and to do more hybrid events and I don't really know what a hybrid event looks like like yeah but uh, I'm not sure anybody does but there's definitely an appetite for experimenting um, and I think people lots of people have really found that there is lots to be gained from that different approach that hopefully we will be able to carry on after we're back to something that's more like a normal life. When I had my daughter my ability to attend things went dramatically mm. down and you only have to be out of your local writing scene for a short amount of time and then everything's changed nights have moved um particularly in Edinburgh because we have a student population like mm-hmm. well you know it just disappeared overnight for people who geographically are isolated but also people who who maybe are living lives where there's a lot of responsibility that isolates them mm-hmm. as well that could be super useful I'm glad to hear you you say you think it's going to change next question is a listener question so I did ask listeners to send them some questions beforehand and we have Alison who lives near Sterling and her question is that there is a courtroom element to the verdict but most of the time when there's a courtroom element you're seeing it from the point of view of maybe the lawyers or a defendant a witness you chose a jury so what attracted you to talking about the experience of being a juror Mm, well I think it was it was partly actually having been on a jury myself years ago so it was one of those cases where you uh, you know you get uh, you have an experience and then it sort of percolates away for a very long time and all of a sudden up pops an idea for a a story that I find really interesting about the process and I suppose what I'd not fully appreciated until I sat on a jury myself was that actually it's it is it is really a process and actually you can get to the point of a verdict without really knowing what you yourself personally think about the innocence or otherwise of the defendant I mean I did have a a view about that um, in the case I was a jury on and happily that and the verdict were were two things that were exactly aligned but I thought actually it would be possible to to have the experience that Natalie has of going through a, a trial seeing that actually the prosecution haven't been able to mount a compelling case that meets the the burden of reasonable doubt and the jury to be sure about their verdict. And so knowing that in that case, you can only return one verdict, but feeling perhaps deep down that that wasn't the right answer, that wasn't really the truth. And how would that feel? Um, so that's, yeah, so that's where it, it came from, that whole idea. And then Natalie sort of announced herself um, in a way that very 
very few characters that I've written have done but um and once she'd done that really it was kind of <laughs> she was largely in the driving seat <laughs> I think she always is in the driving seat in everything she does isn't she <laughs> she absolutely is yeah <laughs> I was so, her unwitting pawn <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are with Natalie um so it's really interesting that came from your own experience were you at that point in your life thinking do you know what I really want to be a crime writer and this is really interesting and observing it or was this before that was even the path you were were going down so it it was it was the path that I was on but it was um very early really in in the journey so I had an agent and I remember her saying at the time that uh, oh this would be a really good experience you know lots of good material for a story and going and having um, the experience of being on a jury and thinking well yes that's a really interesting experience for a lot of things thing about the way that ideas get planted you don't often even realize that they're they're there until something happened I don't know where she came from but she came from somewhere and and those two things then coalesced. It's really interesting as well as writing crime fiction I listen to and read an awful lot of true crime and I know that in true crime there is a lot of discussion about being ethical you know Mm. if you still have say victims loved ones and families alive or you know maybe if it's a crime where somebody hasn't died but they've been very you know it's been life-changing for them how we handle that and I know that rape cases are notoriously difficult and they're not always prosecuted in the way other crimes are how conscious were you when you were writing that rape cases are something that divides a lot of people and different readers might interpret this book in very very mm. ways so I was very conscious of that and through the editing process so we had lots of conversations my editor and I about about that I mean I think as you say with a subject like this people will bring their own interpretations to it I mean the reason actually that the court scenes are are relatively long in relation to the book is that I wanted to be able to put in front of the reader the evidence that would be put in front of a jury in in my fictional case to give people that opportunity to think about if I were was faced with this what would I actually do and and you know Siobhan's character is quite interesting in that respect so she's the one who says are we really are we sure I just don't believe that somebody would make up this story and I think that's how a lot of us feel and there is a difference between that kind of instinctive want wanting to believe somebody sometimes and the evidence that's there in front of a jury and particularly in in rape cases which by their very nature are often dependent on the evidence of two people uh, and not Mm. much else and those people who've got you know, completely different perspectives and completely different drivers. And it's very difficult in a situation where what you're supposed to be doing is summing up the evidence that's in front of you and meeting that bar of being sure of the verdict, you know, not thinking that something was probably or, or likely to be the case, but actually being really sure of it. And that, that is a very challenging thing in those kinds of cases. I've never been on a jury, but I could imagine it would be really difficult. And I've often wondered about the phrase reasonable doubt, because mm-hmm. I think everybody has different bars as to what's reasonable. And mm-hmm. some of that is informed by individual life experience, which other people aren't necessarily going to understand. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they used to always talk about the man on the clapping omnibus. And I was like, well, uh, first of all, he's a man, he's not a woman. 
can we say the people who travel to Clapham by bus are so homogenous anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a very different country now from when some of these things were set up legally. And I think there's a lot of really interesting questions around things like jury trials and mm-hmm. particularly like rape myths and things like that. I mean, what I would say actually with my my own experience of being on a jury, I found a very positive one. And that although the people who were on the jury that I was on were from very different backgrounds it the the process I think worked in terms of everybody sitting around looking at what was put in front of them trying to everybody tried very hard to be fair I think that was the thing that really impressed me there is something about that setup that room the seriousness of it and hearing from the people who've been directly affected that I think brings out something that's quite good in people's ability to look at a case and and make a judgment. I thought that was very heartening. But I do think, you know, there there are really difficult questions. And I think actually that the whole thing about, um, you know, reasonable doubt or or being sure is very challenging in these kinds of cases because it's predicated on the worst possible thing happening, being that somebody who isn't guilty of a crime is convicted of it. And yeah, that is a terrible thing. Um, But I think it's also fair to ask the question of, is that the worst thing? I mean, could could it be just as bad for somebody who has experienced a terrible crime, who's been a victim of a terrible crime, to go through that process, to have to relive it in front of a whole bunch of people, and then to find that actually there is no action taken against the perpetrator? Those are actually impossible questions to answer Mm. but they're you know they're things that it's right for us to to think about absolutely and I think each generation probably comes with slightly different challenges to the legal system because each generation has slightly different understanding of of the world and how it should work Mm. but I also wonder sometimes do we expect too much from a system which is essentially designed and run by people and given that human beings are very very fallible we're often not aware of our own biases is our ideal of justice too high and too hard or Mm. should we expect absolutely the best I'm not sure about this and actually as I've got older I've got less sure yes same here (laughs) I think that that, that's probably a sign of wisdom (laughs) It moves on really easily to my next question, actually, where I was going to ask you, do you, as a fiction author, feel you have a responsibility to sort of to educate or to shine a light in societal feelings? Or is your responsibility just to write a good book people really Mm want to read? So, yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. Actually, I've got a kind of an 80-20 answer to it. So I 80% believe that actually authors can be a little bit self-important about their impact in the world. A lot of time and energy that's expended on the question of, you know, how how are we being responsible as writers, as though Mm. actually, you know, what we write has a huge impact on on what the thoughts and views are of people who read it. And I think, you know, all the research suggests that actually people have made up their own mind about things based on all manner of stuff but almost certainly not what you've written and whenever they are faced with evidence that contradicts what they already think they discard it and whenever they're faced with evidence that uh, supports what they think they are absolutely keen to to believe it and to espouse it I think there's probably a limit to the extent to which even if we were trying to be responsible and to give our you know and what does responsible mean really to 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 give our own sense of the world and our own values to what extent that necessarily means that people will agree them and buy into them and I personally know that as a reader if I come across something that 
I think is uh, an author trying to get on their soapbox in a work of fiction, it, it's a turn off. And so one, one of my favourite authors is MC Beaton, the late MC Beaton. I, I love a bit of Agatha Raisin, which is like my guilty pleasure. And if I'm feeling feeling ill or miserable, then there's nothing like curling up with a bit of Agatha. Um, but I do have to say, I think I think it's pretty clear that MC Beaton's politics and mine are not the same. I think I'll just you know give it a rest. Still, really enjoy it, and it's not. And I probably wouldn't if it were more than just the occasional moment in the story where I, I felt there's this soapbox time. As it is, I really enjoy the story, and ninety percent is ninety five percent, ninety eight percent probably is excellent story. And then there's the occasional moment where I think, oh, well, we you and I disagree on this. But then there's this the twenty percent of me that also thinks actually. My little book may not be the thing that makes a difference to anybody, but it's part of that broader picture of the way that we see society portrayed in in whether it's books or films or TV, which we all consume all the time and which has a, a must have you know a huge cumulative effect on how we think and feel. So there is something there, I think, about just being cognizant of that and try, trying to be aware of the potential messages that you're giving and and how they might be received as long as you do that in a way that doesn't detract from the story you're trying to to tell it's a really tricky balancing act and I'm not sure that I've necessarily worked out myself what I think about it yet hence my 80 20 split which might change (laughs) I think as crime writers as well you're quite often writing characters who are not nice people in any way whatsoever yeah I know when I was writing my debut novel that the main character is a serial killer who is basically trying to set himself up as a mentor for other serial killers. So he is giving out the worst advice ever. <laughs> like yeah. no, nobody should follow any of his advice <laughs> at all. But at the same time, it, if I made him nice, if I made him respectful, the story would have gone. Yeah, I mean, people do bad stuff and some people are really not very nice um for whatever reason I mean I think that the thing the thing that I really struggle with most actually is a kind of to what extent is sometimes in portraying a character who's not behaving in a way that you would think is a particularly good or positive way to behave what you want to make them a three-dimensional character um not just a bad person um, with motivations and real thoughts and real feelings often there's that kind of gray area between what somebody's experiences are and their mental health and Mm. I think that is particularly difficult and goodness I mean I I, yeah that is something that I do think about a lot but I'm not sure what the answer is that place of saying that people will have there are people who have mental health problems people with mental health problems behave in this particular way and they are a problem um and somebody that we should be worried about and as though they're some kind of different species i think as long as you're telling a a story in as an authentic way as you can with a character that you've really thought about and you're being honest in your portrayal of that character as you see them then that's probably the best you can do but it's yeah it is it is something i think about a lot it's a really interesting comment about mental health because of course i think this year probably everybody's experienced some really poor mental health it was really anxious time stressful time I at one point just went I'm not listening to any news whatsoever because this is too much I think that really shows that you don't get a class of people who they have mental health problems and they don't you get circumstances which can 
impact on people's mental health. It's just that different people are going through, most of the time, different people are going through different circumstances. I think it's taken now when we're all going through quite similar circumstances to realise, well, you know, everybody can have a mental health problem. A lot of it's just your surroundings and and where things are. In both the book club and the verdict, you have female protagonists who are totally convinced of their own rightness and it Mm. gets to the point where almost other people aren't real to them they can't imagine other people also having thoughts and feelings and individual motivations which are just as important is this a conscious thing or is it just a theme that happens to be coming up for you I'm not interested in writing stories about women who are just victims um, Mm. and who things happen to. Although in the book club, of course, Lucy is somebody who things largely happen to. But Alice is is the cause of that. And I I personally find that more interesting in that relationship between women, a very interesting vein to mine. We're, We're often portrayed as being victims and being as you know because women are generally speaking less physically strong that that's the role we need to take I don't like that way of looking at the world as a woman myself I don't feel that way and I like to portray women who are able to take charge no matter how extreme their behaviors are they have agency they are the people who are making things happen who are taking action um and you know some of it can be pretty horrible stuff that they're doing um and i think there's something about being free to write women who aren't nice i I find uh, important to me i I find that really interesting as well because i've been reading a book about the psychology of female violence by an academic called anna motts and Mm. it's fascinating because you kind of come out of it thinking, wow, women can be just as violent as men. But it's just that they express their violence in a very, very different way because Mm. they don't always have the physical strength. So Mm. I'm kind of thinking there's probably been masses of female serial killers, but we just don't know about it because they were poisoning in the days before you had the kind of forensics to really be yeah. able to detect poisons or a lot of the women they their violence is towards people who are in their care so mm. children elderly people loads of nurses are killers well actually mm. I should rephrase that nurses are great <laughs> some nurses kill but not most nurses I don't I don't want to turn the nurses against that would be horrendous and so they're they're killing in ways that are private and at home Mm. which is the female sphere for so much of history I think they might just be better at getting away with it because society (laughs) has this idea that women care and Mm. to contemplate that women's care is actually murderous goes so far against our idea of what motherhood is and what being a woman is that people just cannot contemplate it yeah I completely agree with that and it's interesting because Anna Mott says if you don't allow women their violence then you're just not allowing women and I am of this bent as a feminist I think you have to be able to allow women the bad as well as the good if we have a feminism which is only about how great women are or how often we're victims which is a real issue it's not fully taking in the gamut of women 
as a whole. It's not, and it's actually restricting us as well. So I think it, there is something about the whole kind of Sarah Everard case mm. being a really interesting and, and awful. The narrative is so often about you know, don't go out, don't put yourself at risk. You know, you are going to be at risk if you're walking on your own at night. Um, the streets aren't places for lone women and, and so on. And the reality is, yes, terrible things do occasionally happen uh, and that case was you know a, a terrible example of exactly that mm. but at the same time young men are more likely to be victims of physical violence on the streets than women are um and yet young men don't aren't told don't walk anywhere on your own don't go anywhere mm. after dark on your own i think you know there is a it's a, it's a really difficult set of circumstances but i think it's worth thinking about to what extent are we happy to accept that almost keeping of us in our boxes by telling us that we need to be afraid um and to what extent do are we prepared to take risk you know, managed risk in order to live a, a full life and not to be boxed in by people's expectations of what we can and can't do and should and shouldn't do and i i think this is something women have been grappling with since uh last century so around about the yorkshire ripper stuff that happened in the seven mm. women in many ways are doing so much more than we were allowed to before. You know, we go to university, we can be engineers, you know, mm. all this kind of stuff. And I do wonder sometimes if the, the violence of being out in public, not just in the real world, but also in the, the crime fiction world, is actually a reaction to women's increasing independence I think we probably need an academic who has a lot of time to do research to get any answers on this. <laughs> what advice would you have? So about two, three years ago, you still hadn't had a book published, you know, and now here you are, you've had two published, you know, you're working on your third. What advice would you give to any aspiring crime authors out there? Uh, so uh, uh, I think one of the things that really helped me when I was trying to go through the process of actually finishing writing a book even was, uh, you know, you, there's so much advice and, and useful help and, and support online. And there's a huge wealth of stuff out there about how to write a book, how to structure a book, how to engage with agents. And that's hugely helpful. But the one thing that stuck with me was reading somewhere that perseverance is more important than talent. And at the time, I found that incredibly comforting because I thought, who can ever be a judge of whether or not they've got talent? And talent sounds like such a, a, an amazing thing to have. And surely somebody else has it and, and I haven't. But, but nevertheless, I can persevere with something and I can keep going regardless of, of how good or not my writing is. I can keep going. Um, and actually, that was hugely comforting to start with. And then it came to the point where you have a few setbacks and discover that the reason that um, people don't just all persevere is because actually it's really hard to persevere yeah. when you feel that sometimes, you know, you've, you're not going in that straight line, that trajectory of just getting closer and closer and closer, but you can feel like you're getting closer and then you can all of a sudden have a setback and, and feel that you've not got anywhere at all. And what's the point? And is it are you are, are you fooling yourself in uh, hoping for this thing and wouldn't you just be better off giving it a rest and going and doing something else instead just not listening to that voice but remembering that the one thing that absolutely everybody who is published has in common whether they're published traditionally in um, hybrid forms or self-published is that they haven't given up they've kept at it until their work is there uh, and 
and remembering that even when it's hard, it doesn't mean to say that you're not going to get there. Um, you will get there if you continue to believe in that and do everything that you can possibly think of to move yourself forward. And, and there's always something. So, you know, let yourself be miserable when you have a setback, but don't let it put you off keeping going. Well, I feel like you've just given me a real pep talk, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That was lovely. Thank you. If no one else oh. listens to it, I've got a lot out of that. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, good. Well, it's, it's you know, absolutely true. It's like, just so, listen, I don't know if all listeners will be aware, but my first, my debut novel is currently being wrecked by an agent. And the this process of knowing they're sending it out to publishers and sitting and waiting is yeah. the most excruciating thing yeah. I have been through. It is. It's horrendous. It's such an emotional process. And in fact, when my first book was doing the rounds with my agent at the time uh, and didn't find a publisher here, uh, eventually did find uh, a couple abroad, but but no one here. It was at that time, I remember getting the email from my agent to say, yeah, we've had a, basically we've had a bunch of no's. So we now need to do the postmortem and just being so miserable about it. It was just like one of the worst feelings ever. Uh, and I went along to um, the London Writers Cafe, which is a kind of a meetup thing which happens in, in London. They had a talk by Julie Cohen, the author. At the end of it, uh, I went up to her and just said, this is the experience I've gone through. And I gave her the poor woman. I mean, I just kind of blurted out this tale of woe about how I'd been working on this book and my agent being really positive about it and uh, I'm really hopeful for it. And then it had not got anywhere and now I was having to, to try and change lots of things and it felt like I was losing my way with it and and she was so lovely and she, I remember what she said was you probably won't want to hear this now but it will probably be the next book that where it happens and I thought no I don't really want to hear that to be honest giving <laughs> 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 on this one uh, but actually she was right you know that I did carry on working on that when it did go out again it didn't get anywhere here but actually it did uh, allow me to make contact with the, one, the publisher who eventually published my next one so you know even though sometimes things don't happen the way you want them to at the time you may find that actually there is a seed there uh, that can bring you something you hadn't expected a little bit further along the line. That's very comforting, actually, <laughs> like, hearing that experience and that, you know, what you're doing isn't necessarily wasted if it doesn't come to fruition immediately. Absolutely. Yeah, that's lovely to hear. So also, I have set up the True Crime Fiction Shop, which is an affiliate of the bookshop and sales go to help independent bookshops and also the podcast. So I'm asking all my guests if they'd like to recommend a book to our listeners it doesn't have to be crime it's just something you love and really mm. want to share with people yes thank you so I am going to recommend If I Can't Have You by Charlotte Levin which I read very recently and which is one of those books that sort of defies categorization really in terms of genre which always makes me slightly worried <laughs> but this is an amazing book it's got a fantastic uh, protagonist a uh, female protagonist who is really interesting character does really interesting and sometimes alarming things but she is brilliant so I'm just going to do a real quick fire round so we can hear a little bit about some of the things you love and or hate best crime writer in your opinion oh my goodness I'm going to say Sophie Hannah would you prefer crime fiction books or crime fiction films and tv 
books yeah books books you'd expect an author to say that really wouldn't you? <laughs> I do, although I, yeah, I love line of duty so you know tv too <laughs> yeah favorite ever crime fiction book oh that is so tough um I'm going to say uh, little face by Sophie Hannah because I think it's quite unusual in terms of its structure as well as being an amazingly good read all right, you you are persuading me to read more Sophie Hannah, definitely. <laughs> Your favourite crime fiction TV? Oh, Line of Duty, definitely. Okay. It's the Unforgotten for me. It's just... Watch it, because it's not working properly on our TV. It's been driving me mad. But yes, I really, I've heard such good things about it. Nicola Walker is just phenomenal. It's the most understated police procedural I have ever seen and it makes the whole thing it's brilliant and favorite crime fiction movie oh can I say Gone Girl just because actually it's cheating a bit because I really like the book so in in the absence of any other film that immediately springs to mind Gone Girl you can say what you want it's your favorite no no one can tell you what your favorite is um it is a great film I think Rosamund Pike's performance was chilling and doesn't everybody love the cool girl monologue it's great Gillian Flynn is just great I love her female protagonists they're never quite what you expect them to be Uh, no absolutely that's she's a fantastic example of uh, of portraying women in a way that you don't expect and lastly who are you more interested in criminals or detectives Ooh, criminals yeah me too there's just always that why question that Absolutely. you want to dig into. Even like I was reading Red Dragon and I noticed I was so much more interested in what the killers were doing than <laughs> any of the scenes with the FBI. Yes, I think, I mean, because they're, they're so, their experience and their thoughts is so far removed, one hopes, <laughs> from our own, that they are compelling, I think. Kind of feel, it's similar with politics in a way as with people, but people who are right on the fringes and the edges then tell us something about the centre and what's happening there as well yeah okay so thank you so much for being my first guest I feel like I want to explore some of these issues so much more hopefully we'll wait for the third book to come out and we can have you back on that would be fantastic thank you so much for having me it's been great You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.
You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.